welcome to Central. Uh, my name is Tim. I get the honor of serving as one of the pastors here. Uh, if you're fairly new to this place, man, want to, uh, want to give you a special shout out, say welcome. We're so glad that you've joined us. Also want to give a quick shout out to those of you who join us online, especially to uh, John and Lindsay Gonzalez all the way in Austin, Texas. We're so glad that you're here with us uh, today. Let's give it up for them as well. I appreciate this section clapping. You guys are all right over here. Just want to, okay. Good, 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 good. Uh, we're in week three of our series that we're calling Freedom and uh, discovering practical ways that, that we can live free and walk in, in God's freedom in 2020. And next week, we're going to uh, wrap up this series. We're going to have a special guest speaker. The CEO of AIM will be here, the Agape International Mission. Uh, new CEO, yeah, it's awesome. Uh, um, uh, Lisa is her name, is going to be sharing some of her story, her uh, kind of fresh vision for uh, this ministry and where they're going in the future. So I hope you'll join us for Super Bowl Sunday and hear for her, uh, from her as well. And, and hey, anyway, how about those Chiefs anyway? Like, uh, whoa, 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 wow, wow. Well, I mean Niners. Did I say Chiefs, I meant Niners. Hey, there it is. Hey, it's going to be, it's going to be awesome. Um, excited for that one. Uh, well, hey, for, uh, for our th throughout this series, we've been having this uh, theme verse, theme verse of John 8, uh, 31 through 32. So I want to invite you uh, to read this passage, our theme verse, our theme text, uh, really loud, really proud uh, with me together on the count of three. Uh, we can do this. Here we go. On the count of three, one, two, three. Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. All right, week three, we're going crazy. So uh, I, I want the, this section of the room, this half of the room, just verse 31. Okay, this section of the room, just verse 32. Okay, loud and proud. It's not a competition. Everything's a competition. Who am I kidding? This is a competition. See so who can be the loudest. Verse 31, you guys ready? Let's read out. One, two, three. Give yourselves a hand. That is awesome. Well, hey, as we uh, begin week three, I want to kick off with a story. I'm from the Midwest. My grandparents, they had this uh, big garden. Every year they'd have this massive garden. Every year uh, we would pick tomatoes. We would can tomatoes. We would can green beans. We would can beets and all this, this stuff. And some of my fondest memories with my grandparents are, are in the garden working. And I didn't necessarily enjoy it at the time, but I look back on it with very fond Memories, and it reminds me of the story of this boy that was in the garden with his grandpa, and he's he's trying to pull up this carrot, right? And this carrot just won't give, and and the, the grandpa's watching him struggle, trying to pull up this this carrot, and this little boy's just just pulling with all these guys, really putting his back into it. And grandpa's like, "Hey, son, do you need some do you need some help? You want grandpa to come help you pull up that carrot?" He's like, "No, Papa, I got it, I got it, I got it." And he 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 keeps pulling, keeps pulling, and then then finally pulls it up and falls back and lands on his his bumper, and his grandpa's like. Son, are you, are you okay? You got the carrot. Good job. You, you're doing all right. He said, Papa, man, I just want you to know sometimes it's not easy when you got the whole world pulling against you. Right? And sometimes in life we face situations, we face circumstances, we face seasons. Like that carrot, it feels like the whole world's just, just pulling against us. And we're, we're trying to put our back into it. We're trying to put all we got into it. And it just feels like we just can't get a break. We can't find freedom because the whole world is just pulling against us. And so we're going to come to 2 Kings 18 and 19 today. You can turn your Bibles there. We're going to be, be camping out in 2 Kings 
18 and 19, the story of a guy by the name of Hezekiah. And we're going to be looking at a lot of scriptures, and, uh, and it's basically just going to preach the message for me. I'll just make some notes along the way. But this is a very significant passage, 2 Kings 18 and 19. It's the only passage that I'm aware of in the Old Testament that is recorded in three places at such great length. 2 Kings 18 and 19, 2 Chronicles 32, as well as Isaiah 36 and 37. Story takes place in 701 BC. It's regarding this guy by the name of Hezekiah. And uh, in, in the Hebrew language, they didn't have words to show emphasis. They wouldn't say, this is extraordinary or this is exquisite. They would, they would often repeat the same word to show emphasis. And I just believe that when we come to this passage, because of its repetition in nature, because of how thorough it's documented, uh, not only in the Bible, but, but from historians, I just believe that God's trying to communicate to us here today a very important message. Beyond that, Romans 15.4 reads this, everything that was written in the past, it was written to teach us, so that through the endurance and the encouragement of scriptures, we might have hope. So when we come to this text, it's written to encourage you, it's written to help you have some endurance today, it's, it's written so that, that we, can, we can walk in in hope. Uh, I had a friend, uh, we were talking one time and uh, just kind of sharing uh, what's going on in our lives. He said, Tim, I just want you to know something, buddy. He's like, hey, you're either in a trial, you're coming out of a trial, or you're about to go into one. And I'm like, thanks, Nate. I need to find some new friends. That's what I need to do. Uh, but that's true. Like for all of us here today, no matter who you are, where you are, like you're either in a trial, you're coming out of a trial, or you're about to go into one. And I believe 2 Kings 18 and 19 gives us some practical principles, some handles for us to walk in freedom and weather the hard times of life. And listen, whenever the, the hard times come, when those seasons come, and, and they will come, we can choose to let the pain, we can choose to let the problem imprison us or instruct us. Let me say it this way. My pain is either a jail that imprisons me or a school that instructs me and empowers me, and that choice is mine. That's your choice. Whenever life gets tough, you can allow it to be a prison that enslaves you, or it can be a school that instructs you, and we can learn from those hard times. If you'll indulge me, I want to give you a little bit of a backstory on this text, 2 Kings 18 and 19, this guy by the name of Hezekiah. Hezekiah comes onto the scene. Uh, he takes over the kingdom. He's ruling in Judah. The nation of Israel is a divided kingdom at this time. Samaria's to the north, Judah's to the south. Hezekiah is ruling in Judah. His father Ahaz was a real loser. Hezekiah comes onto the scene at the age of 25, takes over this kingdom, but his dad Ahaz was, a, was not a good king. Uh, he had shut down the temple for worship. He had set up uh, idols and, and, and pagan worship throughout the land. Uh, we even read in, in 2 Kings chapter 16 that Ahaz, his father, sacrifices his own son, one of his own sons, in pagan worship uh, to this, this, this idol. I mean, idolatry is running rampant. The nation of Israel is in, in ruin. And Hezekiah comes on the scene and he, he ushers in reform on a national level. The first month of his reign, he is not playing games. He's ripping off band-aids left and right, and he's bringing about change to this nation. The first thing that he does is he reopens the temple for worship. He tears down all the foreign idols, all the pagan worship. He gets rid of all of that. He says, no, we're going to worship the one true God. 
After a couple of years, he breaks a treaty with the nation of Assyria. Now, his father had established this this treaty. Uh, The nation of Assyria was the world-dominating power at the time. And they're basically kind of like the playground bully, right? Uh, It's kind of like, you give me your lunchbox or I'm going to beat you up, right? Hezekiah initially does this. He actually takes gold from the temple to pay the nation of Assyria. And he, and he gets to this point where he steps into courageous faith. He's like, I'm not doing that any longer. Listen to me, king of Assyria. I'm not, I'm not doing that anymore. And the Assyrians are like, okay, buddy, well, I'm coming to beat you up. Like, we're coming for you. And, uh, and the Assyrians were a nasty group of, uh, of people, a group of, of soldiers. That This nation was very very brutal, and this is a huge, huge, huge step for Hezekiah whenever we come to 2 Kings 18 and 19. This is a step of faith on a massive scale. Uh, To give you some perspective, uh, the nation of uh, the city of Jerusalem, of of Judea, going against the Assyrians was about like uh, this map here. It's kind of like the United States uh, waging war against Belize or Nicaragua, and Belize saying, you know what, U.S., we're not, we're not submitting to you. You can come try to fight us if you want, but our God is bigger than you, right? And this is what Hezekiah is doing. Hezekiah would be Belize, nation of Assyria, about the size of the United States, just to give us a framework of comparison. Three reasons, real quick, before we get into the, the, the heart of the message, three reasons for Assyrian military success, why they were able to conquer so much land and and retain so much land. Uh, The first uh, reason is this, they had siege warfare. They were innovators in war tactics. Uh, they, they came up with, with siege warfare. So, so before the Assyrians, basically, if, uh, if uh, the city was fortified, if it had a walled city, uh, then, then basically the army would have to surround that city, wait for the people's uh, resources to wear out, uh, where they ran out of food, they ran out of water. And then in a very weakened, depleted state, the people would come out of the city, the, the soldiers would be waiting there, and they would, they would crush their enemy. Well, the Assyrians didn't have the patience for that. They were much more innovative than that. And so they came up with siege warfare tactics. And what you see here, is a uh, relief of what the Assyrians invented. This is a siege tower. And so this siege tower would be filled with Assyrian soldiers. Even if you had a walled city or a fortified city, they would get get Assyrian soldiers on top of the siege tower to rain arrows in on top of your city. They had this this battering ram that would knock a hole in your city. And then soldiers would jump over the wall into the city, open the doors. And if the Assyrians wanted you, they were coming for you. And even if you thought you were safe, you weren't. Because if the Assyrians wanted you, they're coming for you. Not only did they invent uh, the siege tower, but they also came up with an iron-tipped battering ram. This next picture here. Right here, this is another one of the Assyrians' reliefs. And so maybe if you've seen Braveheart, right, like uh, typical siege warfare, they would get like these big, big pieces of timber, these big logs, and like ram the gate of the city and try to break in. Well, the Assyrians were more innovative than that, and they said, hey, let's get an iron-tipped battering ram, basically this, this iron-tipped cart, and let's ram the gate, and we can get in more efficiently, more effectively. And this allowed them to take more ground very quickly. Second reason for... The Assyrian success was mass deportation. Uh, This isn't in your notes yet. We're going to get to that in just a minute. But mass deportation. Before the Assyrians, basically whenever an opposing country would come in and take land, they would set up a governor or a leader to occupy that land. And uh, and the problem with that is that, that all the locals were still there. And so even though the nation of a foreign country has come in and beaten you, They would set up one of their governing officials, but the locals would rebel against that governor, take back the land, and they weren't able to maintain the ground that they had taken. Well, the Assyrians came up with a strategy of mass deportation, and uh, this is actually a relief of what the Assyrians are doing, deporting 
people. We read this in 2 Kings 18.11. It says this, the king of Assyria deported Israel. Now, this is the northern part of Israel to Assyria and settled them in Hillel, in Gozan, on the Habor River, and in the towns of the Medes. And so we have a map here I want to show you just to get some framework of what's taking place. This is Sennacherib's uh, route. This is his campaign, his military campaign. This is uh, what he's done. So he takes Samaria in the north, that's the red part. Uh, Hezekiah is in Jerusalem in the middle, uh, up there in the, the brown. Uh, but he takes all these cities and he deports them. Here's the next map. And he deports them to these larger cities. And so Israel's down here, this red star. And then he deports them up there to Gozan, Hillel, in the land of the Mede, on the Habor River. And so he deports them hundreds of miles away. And so now they're surrounded by other foreigners. And if they wanted to rebel, they can't speak the same language. They can't unite forces. They can't come against. And even if they wanted to rebel, they're hundreds of miles away from home. And so it allows the Assyrians to not only conquer land, but to, to maintain Land and, and these guys are brutal. While they're deporting people, historians call it a fish hook method, where they would take hooks and put them through their captives' noses and lead them away like fish on a stringer, sometimes through their lips, sometimes through their jaw and up out their mouth. These guys were brutal. They were nasty. And so if you think you're going to run away while you're being deported, you can go for it, but it's going to cost you your nose. It's going to cost you your lip, and they'll hunt you down. In the process, these Assyrians were bad dudes that you did not want to mess with. But these tactics allowed them to become the world-dominating power at the time. And that leads us to our third reason for Assyrian military success, and that was terror and intimidation. These are nasty dudes. Uh, King Sennacherib, who Hezekiah is about to go up against, we're going to read this in just a moment. But he moved the capital of Assyria to this this town called Nineveh. And so Nineveh is the capital city. And this is a, a full-grown woman. These reliefs would have lined the streets of Nineveh. And it's basically highlighting the Assyrian war exploits, what they've done. And let's go to the next page here, next, next slide. This is one of the reliefs. The Assyrians prided themselves on this. They would impale men on spikes. Whenever they would conquer a land, uh, they would cut off the heads of all the individuals that they have defeated and stack them up at the entrance to the city gate. So next time family comes to visit, you would know that the, the Assyrians have been here and you don't mess with the Assyrians. They would fillet people alive. Uh, they would chop off limbs and appendages. We got this next slide here highlighting that. And, and just very brutal, vicious nasty guys. They would, sow, they would conquer land. They would sow salt in the field. So even if you wanted to, to kind of reestablish yourself in this land, you couldn't, you couldn't grow crops. It was brutal. And they would leave some guys alive. They would conquer land. And some of the soldiers, they would just gouge out their eyes, cut off their ears, and let them live. So future generations to come would say, what happened to grandpa? Why doesn't he have any eyes? Why doesn't grandpa have any ears? Well, son, because the Assyrians came when your grandpa was a soldier. And you just need to know one thing. You don't mess with the Assyrians. You don't mess with them. Terror and intimidation was one of their greatest tactics. And I would just like to submit to you today that you have a very real enemy that is even more vicious, more tactful, more gruesome, more, more innovative than even the Assyrians. Here's what the Bible says in John 8:44. It says that he was a murderer from the beginning not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When your enemy speaks, when he lies, he speaks his native language. Check this out, for he's a liar and the father of lies. 1 Peter 5, 8, your enemy, the devil, here's what he does. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. 
That's not necessarily teddy bear imagery there. If you've ever watched the, the Discovery Channel, your enemy is the lion, you're the gazelle. He wants to separate you from the pack, get you isolated and alone, and have you for lunch. And if that sounds gruesome, that sounds too vivid, take it up with God because it's in the Bible. I don't know what to say about that. I'm just telling you, it's, it's, it's real. And, it's, and it's, it's gruesome. And people get destroyed in the process. So we're going to look at 2 Kings 18. Uh, and 19, and pull out some principles from what takes place with King Hezekiah as he wages war with this king of Assyria and get some application for us here today. Uh, if you're taking notes inside your program or, or these notes, you can refer to these later. And uh, there's some discussion notes in there as well. Uh, you can, can check that out at your, your own time. But here's the lie. Here's the first lie that your enemy wants to feed you. Here's the first fill in the blank. The enemy of Hezekiah, I believe your enemy and mine, here's what he wants you to do. He wants you to think you're all alone. You're all alone. 2 Kings 18, beginning in verse 17, it, uh, it reads this. The king of Assyria sent his supreme commander and his chief officer and his field commander with a large army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. They came up to Jerusalem and stopped at the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to Washerman's field. They called for the king, and Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shibna, the secretary, Joah, son of Ashva, the recorder, went out to him. The field commander said to them, tell Hezekiah. Now this is a message from, from everyone we just talked about, the, the Assyrian king, the brutal, nasty, dominating force of the time, overbearing compared to Hezekiah. Here's the message. This is what the great king, the king of Assyria says. Or what are you basing this confidence of yours? You say you have strategy and military strength, but you speak only empty words. On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? Look now. You are depending on Egypt, that splendor reed of a staff which pierces a man's hands and wounds him if he leans on it, such as Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who depend on him. And if you say to me, we are depending on the Lord our God, isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar in Jerusalem? Come now, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you can put riders on them. He's like, hey, you know what, I'll give you horses, but you don't even have enough soldiers to form a cavalry, buddy. Like, who do you even think you are that you're coming against me? I'll, I'll, I'll give you a leg up. Like, I'll, I'll front you a few points here, but, but I'm coming for you, and there's no way you can come and rebel against me. Verse 24, how can you repulse one of the least of my master's officials, even though you're depending on Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Furthermore, have I come to attack and destroy this place without word from the Lord? The Lord himself told me to march against this country and destroy it. And it's a lie. The enemy wants Hezekiah, wants the nation of Judah to feel like, man, we're all alone. Like, like, like we, there's no hope here. Not only are we all alone, but, but man, we're, we're, we're done for. And even if we had resources, we, we can't rebel against them. They're, they're huge. As a matter of fact, God's the one who put you in this situation. God's the one who put you in this situation. This pinch. And I believe the enemy will tell you the same thing. You're all alone. You don't have what it takes. You've blown it. You don't have the resources. You don't have the abilities. In fact, God himself has abandoned you. I remember a time in my life when I, uh, I was following God. I was trying to do what I thought was right and, and honor God with my life. And, uh, and man, I blew it big time. 
And I knew if people knew what I had done, they would write me off. I, I knew if, yeah, I thought God knew what I had done, and I thought he had already written me off. And, uh, and I felt like, man, I was, I was all alone. And I'm processing all this, and I'm, I'm trying to, to figure out what's my next step? How, what's my next play? How, how do I move forward from here? Because my life had been so centered on following God and trying to please him. Now God has abandoned me, and now people are going to give up on me. And, and what do I do with this? And I remember it very vividly, like it was yesterday. I can still see it in my mind's eye. I was at my parents' house, actually, and I was about to sit down for breakfast. And I just felt like the Lord dropped in my mind. Maybe it was a thought. Maybe it was God. I think it was from God. But it was just Isaiah 49, 14 through 16. And I was like, <laughs> I don't know what that is or, or what that's about. I, I guess I better, better check that out. And so I, I flipped to my Bible to Isaiah 49. And, uh, and here's what it says in verse 14. But Zion says, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. And I was like, oh boy, that's, that's where I'm at. I think God has forsaken me. I think the Lord's given up on me. And then verse 15 says this, can a mother forget the baby of her breast and not have compassion on the child she has born? It's like, hey, some of you here are parents and you love your kids and you're like, there's no way I could ever forget my kids. There's no way I could ever give up on them. There's no way I would ever abandon them. However, we live in a day and age that's very broken, very fallen, and we know that there are some parents that, that do turn their back on their kids. They do give them up. He says, though she may forget you, I will not forget you, declares the Lord. See, I've engraved you on the palm of my hands, and your walls are ever before me. And it was almost as if the Lord was saying, Tim, if I loved you enough to lay down my life for you, if I loved you enough to go all in for you, don't you think I would love you enough to help you in your time of need? Don't you think I would love you enough to come through for you even when you've blown it? I know your failure has caught you by surprise, but it has not caught me by surprise. I knew that before I went to the cross, and I'm still the God who's for you. I'm still the God who's with you, and I still have your back. And I'm willing to help you in your time of need. And you just need to know that the enemy wants you to think you're all alone. That the Lord has abandoned you. That people have given up on you. But don't believe the lie. Romans 8, 31 through 32 says, what shall we say in response to all these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Listen, if he loved you enough to lay down his life for you, to give you his one and only son. Don't you think he'd love you enough to help you in 2020? Don't you think he'd love you enough to come through for you in whatever you're facing today? I know the problem is big. I know it seems insurmountable, but don't believe for a moment you're all alone. God won't abandon you. Sometimes we're in the midst of seasons that are challenging. We got to talk to ourselves more than we listen to ourselves. Don't allow your emotion to get caught up in the moment. Hang on and anchor yourself in what you know to be true and know that you're not alone. But the enemy wants you to think you're all alone. Second thing he wants you to think is you're deceived. You're deceived. Don't trust God. He's the one who put you here in the first place after all. He, he wants you to think you're, you're deceived. 2 Kings 18 verse 26 through 30 reads this. Then Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, and Shibna the, uh, said to the field commander, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, since we understand it. Don't speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people on the wall. 
These are educated men. The, the, the language of the time was Hebrew. He's like, hey, don't, don't talk to us in Hebrew. Speak to us in Aramaic because we understand what you're saying. If you got a message for us, we'll deliver it to Hezekiah. But you don't have to talk in the language of, of the people. Verse 27 says this, though. But the commander replied, was it only to your master and you that my master sent me to say these things and not to the men sitting on the wall who, like you, will have to eat their own filth and drink their own urine? Nasty dudes. Verse 28, then the commander stood up and called out in Hebrew, hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. This is what the king says. Don't let Hezekiah deceive you. He cannot deliver you from my hand. Don't let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in the Lord when he says that the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. He's like, hey, Hezekiah is deceiving you. Hezekiah is tricking you. Like, don't believe that for a moment. You are deceived. And your enemy wants you to think the same thing. You're deceived. You're nutty. All you got is a bunch of emotion. I mean, how do you really know the Bible's true? I mean, that, that might be good for your wife, but hey, that thing is never going to work for you, buddy. He wants you to feel like all you got is a dream. You're deceived. The enemy wants you to doubt, wants you to whine, wants you to cry, wants you to live in fear. But know this, what the enemy hates the most is when God's people walk in unity, trusting in the Lord, and standing on his word. Because at that point, he is finished. So he will come against you in every angle to get you to feel like I'm alone, I'm deceived. And third and final, he wants you to give up. The third lie is this, just give up, just give up. Second Kings 18 31 through 32 reads this. Don't listen to Hezekiah. This is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me and come out to me. Check this out. Then every one of you will eat from your own vine and fig tree and drink water from your own cistern until I come and take you to a land of your own, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey. Choose life, not death. He's like, hey, buddy, like, you just don't, you don't even have to put up the fight anymore. You just give up. And if you give up, I'm going to take you to your own land. He promises a lot, but he delivers very little. Remember deportation. Remember the hook through the nose and through the jaw and through the lips. Remember how they'll be surrounded by foreigners. They're not going to have their own land. They're going to be in captivity. They're going to be taken as slaves. But he promises so much. Wants you to think you're deceived. Wants you just to give up. Why fight? Is it really worth being a fanatic about this deal? I mean, I know you're in 21 days of prayer and fasting, but like 14 days is pretty good. You can just tap out this week, right? <laughs> know this, whenever you surrender to the enemy, you're headed for captivity. A wise man once said, the chains of bondage are too light to be felt until they're too heavy to be broken. If you continue to compromise, you continue to walk in ways that you know are not pleasing to the Lord, Captivity will be our closest companion because compromise always leads to captivity. So what does Hezekiah do? He could say, you know what, I'm going to smuggle gold to Egypt. I'm going to get the Babylonians to come over and help me. We're going to unite forces. We're going to come against this jerk. What, what, what does Hezekiah do? Let's pick it up in, in chapter 19 and in verse 1 through 4. It says, then Hezekiah, when he heard this, he tore his clothes. He put on sackcloth and he went into the temple of the Lord. 
He sent Eliakim, the palace administrator, Shibna, the secretary, and the leading priest, all wearing sackcloth to the prophet Isaiah. And they told him, this is what Hezekiah says. This is a day of distress and rebuke and disgrace, as when children come to the point of birth and there is no strength to deliver them. It may be that the Lord your God will hear all the words of the field commander, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to ridicule the living God, and that he may rebuke him for the words the Lord your God has heard. Therefore pray for the remnant that remains. Hezekiah could have come up with some new military tactics. He could have come up with this big war strategy, but what does he do? He says, you know what, boys, I got to pray. I got to pray. He goes into the temple of the Lord. He, he prays. He says, hey, guys, I need you to pray. You put on sackcloth and ashes. You guys go pray. And matter of fact, why don't you go get my buddy Isaiah and tell him we got to call out to God because we're in a pickle. We're in a big, big situation that if, unless God comes through, there's no hope for us. We got we to pray. Not only does Hezekiah pray, but he gets a group to join him in prayer. And this is crucial for us at Central. I would just say this, who is in your circle of influence that when stuff hits the fan, you can say, hey, I just, here's what's going on. I need you to pray. We need God to come through for us. And so here's what Hezekiah does. He, he says to Isaiah, the prophet, hey, you go pray. Isaiah gets a word from the Lord and, and Isaiah is like, hey, Hezekiah, things are going to work out. Uh, the, the king Sennacherib's not going to come. He's not going to hurt you. And, and things start to look better. Because uh, these Cushite nation comes against the king of Assyria, and they withdraw from the siege at Jerusalem. They go fight this battle. But while they're away at war, King Sennacherib sends a letter to King Hezekiah. And it basically uh, says, it. well, let me just read it to you. 2 Kings 14, verse 16. Uh, Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers. He read it, went to the temple of the Lord, spread it out before the Lord, and he prayed. The letter basically says this, Hezekiah, don't think I've forgotten about you. I know you think things are starting to look better, but, but, but they're not. I know you think I've forgotten about you, but Hezekiah, I have not forgotten about you. Matter of fact, I'm coming back. I'm going to crush them, and I'm going to come back and crush you too, buddy. Don't think things are looking up. And sometimes in our own lives, in my life personally, uh, things hit the fan, we pray, we call on God, and things start to look better, right? Only for it to like get a letter like that and be like, oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> Things are starting to look a little bit worse. But Hezekiah, here's what he does. He goes before the Lord. He takes it to the temple of the Lord. He actually takes the physical letter, and here's his prayer. Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made the heavens and the earth. Verse 16, give ear, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Listen to the words Sennacherib has sent to insult the living God. And he's like, God, you got to come through. For the sake of your people, would you come through? And here's the result, 2 Kings 19, beginning in verse 35. That night, the angel of the Lord sent word. Uh, the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. Check this out in verse 37 if you have your Bible. I don't think it's on the screen, but here's what it says. Uh, one day while, while he was worshiping at the temple of, of his, his pagan god, one of his sons, Adrimelech and Shizrael, cut him down with a sword and they escaped to the land of Ararat. Then Eshkerdon, his son, 
succeeded him as king. The Lord comes through. Hezekiah comes to the temple Lord. God, here's the situation. You got to come through for me. If you don't come through for me, there's no hope. The next day, 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp were put to death by the Lord. King Sennacherib withdraws only to have his own kids kill him while worshiping at a pagan temple. Here's three closing truths. Three closing truths. The first truth is this. The battle is always won in prayer. The battle is always won in prayer. Like I mentioned, this story is not only documented in 2 Kings, but it was also documented in Chronicles. It's also documented in, uh, just a, a minute, yeah, um, in, uh, in Isaiah. And so in Isaiah's account of this, this very same story, here's what he says in Isaiah 37, 21 through 22. He says this, then Isaiah, son of Amos, sent a message to Hezekiah. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, because you have prayed. Do you see that? Because you've prayed concerning King Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word the Lord has spoken against him. Hezekiah, you prayed. Hezekiah, not only did you pray, but you got your buddies to pray. Hezekiah, you brought it into my temple. You brought it into my presence. You laid the letter out before me. Because you've prayed, here's what I'm going to do. Dr. A.J. Gordon said you can do more than pray after you've prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you pray. Listen, the battle is won in prayer. It is true that, that we need to pray as if everything depends on us, but we also need to work as if everything depends on the Lord. But we, we can't, sometimes we err on one side or the other. Like we pray and we don't do anything, or, or, we, or we just try to do everything on our own strength, but the, the sweet spot's right in the middle where you work as if everything depends on you and you pray as if everything depends on God. And watch how he comes through. Hezekiah, because you've prayed, here's what I'm going to do. John Piper says this, prayer causes things to happen that would not happen if you didn't pray. I'm just telling you, this week, things will happen in your life if you pray. To the degree that you seek God, to the degree that you call on him, to the degree that you go after him, things will shift in your life. Movement will have the hand of God will be on your life. Things will move in your circumstance, in your situation, even if you're up against it like Hezekiah. Because you've prayed, here's what I'm going to do. You can do more than pray after you pray, but you can't do more than pray until you pray. W. Clement Stone, the famous businessman and philanthropist, he says this. Prayer is man's greatest power. Why? Because prayer is where we connect with God and the the God of the universe can take up your cause and he could do what you never thought possible. Second truth is this. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is a warrior. He's able to deliver you and set you free. You can walk in freedom. Why? Because the Lord is a warrior. I don't know if your perspective of God is that he's a warrior. I don't know if your perspective of God is that he's a passive, like, pale-faced altar boy. I don't know what your perspective of God is. But the Bible makes it clear that the Lord, he is strong in battle. The Lord is victorious. The Lord is a warrior. Exodus 15.3 says this, the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Sennacherib, he, uh, the Assyrian kings, they would, they would keep very tight war chronicles of their exploits. And the Assyrians would never, never admit defeat. 
But they documented everything. And so we actually have a picture of Sennacherib's war prism. Uh, this is on, on display at the British Museum. Uh, this is Sennacherib's, and it documents everything that, that Sennacherib ha- has done. This is one of his. He has multiple war prisms. But, but this is one of them, and it actually talks about uh, this incident with, with, uh, uh, with, with King Hezekiah. And on this war prism, here's what it says. I conquered 45 walled cities. This is Sennacherib's words. I conquered Lachish. And then I had Hezekiah caged like a bird in Jerusalem. I had Hezekiah caged like a bird in Jerusalem. And it ends. Because the Lord's a warrior. The Lord took up Hezekiah's cause. The Lord went to battle for Hezekiah. And while Sennacherib had him caged like a bird in Jerusalem, the story ends there. And maybe you're here today. And you too feel like I am caged like a bird because of this situation. I'm caged like a bird because of this addiction. I'm caged like a bird because of my past. I'm caged because of whatever it may be. You fill in the blank. I'm just telling you the Lord is a warrior. He'll take up your cause. You call out to him. You cry out to him. You ask him for his help. He'll bring innovation. He'll bring solutions that you never even thought of. The Lord's a warrior. The Lord's his name. Third, final closing truth is this. His plans are greater than I can dream. His plans are greater than I can dream. Listen, when we wholeheartedly trust the Lord, he's able to do greater things than you could ever dream of, than I could ever dream of. And I don't know about you, but I feel like I can dream of a lot of big things. Ephesians 3, 20 through 21 reads this. Now to him who is able... He's able to do a little bit more, kind of more, a tad more. No, no, no. He's able to do immeasurably more. Like we can't even quantify it. It's immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. And I'm sure, I'm sure you can ask and imagine some pretty, some pretty cool stuff, some pretty big, big things. But he's able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. How's that going to happen? According to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. I know you've experienced a lot of good in your life. I know you've experienced a taste of his mercy. I know you've experienced some, some miracles perhaps in your life. I know you've seen God come through in some pretty big ways in your life. I know you've seen him rescue people out of seemingly impossible situations. I'm just here to tell you, he has immeasurably more for you. Immeasurably more. Not a little bit, not a tad, immeasurably more, according to his power that is at work within us. Will there be more challenges? Absolutely. But here's the promise, in the midst of the pain, he'll be with you. In the midst of the heartache, he's got your back. In the midst of the uncertainty, you can trust an unknown future to a known God. He'll take up your cause. He'll do more than you can dream or imagine. Psalm 126, it's a short psalm, right in the middle of your Bible, Psalm 126. Some historians believe that this was written after the Israelites were delivered out of Babylonian captivity. Uh, Others historians believe that Psalm 126 was written after Israel was released out of Assyrian captivity. Uh, Whichever one is true, the same principle remains, and that is that he's able to do more than we could ever dream or imagine. Here's what it says. 
When the Lord brought back the captive ones to Zion, remember the mass deportation? Remember how he, he moved them hundreds of miles away? We never thought we'd see you again. They probably came back with scars. They probably came back with wounds. But when the Lord brought back the captive ones to Zion, we were like men who dreamed. We never thought we'd see you again. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, wow, the Lord has done great things for those people. The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. And we are filled with joy. Maybe like Hezekiah, there are areas of your life where you feel caged like a bird. Don't know which way to turn, don't know where to go. Here's the good news. God offers each of us his freedom. If we set, if the sun sets you free, you're free indeed. But you need to know that the battle that you're up against will be won in prayer. You need to know that, that you need to call out to God, present that situation before him, get some buddies to call out to God on your behalf. Watch how the Lord works because the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. And he has greater plans than you could ever dream, I could ever dream, than we could ever imagine. Not just a little more, immeasurably more. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness in our lives. We thank you, God, that you are a warrior, that you take up our cause, that God, in the midst of the battle, we can know we're not alone. God, I pray that you would help us to be still and know that you are God in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the seasons, in the midst of the, the struggle, the heartache. There's some people here, God, just going through the thick of it. I pray, God, that we would know that in quietness and trust is our strength. Because, God, that's how you strengthen us. That's how you work. Father, would you take up our cause? Would you go before us? Just as you went before Hezekiah, delivered him from insurmountable odds. Would you show yourself strong today on behalf of your people so that we can be a church, we can be a people who walk in your freedom. In Jesus' name, amen.